Old Testament Premium Podcast number 35, Elijah. I bring you warm greetings from Atlanta. In a few days, I bring you very warm greetings from Arizona and Nevada. The summer heat is enough right here in Georgia. We're going to be looking at the life of a remarkable man of God. My God is Yah or Yahweh. That's what Eliyah means. Eliyah, the Hebrew for Elijah. He's mentioned a hundred times in the Bible. And what a colorful character. He may be best known for his challenge to King Ahab and his queen Jezebel to show who the true God is. And on top of Mount Carmel, there's a showdown. And fire falls down and consumes the sacrifice to Yahweh. Well, we also remember him from the previous chapter when he's fed by the ravens and at his word and prayer, there's a drought for a period of time. Elijah was certainly someone who took a stand, like John the Baptist, who embodied the same spirit, not literally, no reincarnation, of course, but like John the Baptist, he was comfortable speaking to power. He was a rugged individual. And of course, these two prophets, Elijah and John, dressed alike. No wonder there was some confusion. Elijah was a man of prayer, and we certainly see that in the accounts that we read in 1 Kings, and also in the New Testament, in James 5. And he's known for his incredible exit from this life, as he's taken up in chariots of fire, 2 Kings chapter 1. We may be tempted to think of this prophet Elijah as being strong, never faltering, a true pioneer. But he also has a soft, fleshy side. And this makes it very important for me and for any of you type A characters to listen and to learn because no one is that strong. And after the brilliant triumph of chapter 18, we see Elijah on the run literally and emotionally in chapter 19 of 1 Kings. And so the lesson is going to come virtually entirely from that one chapter as we see the emotional side of this incredible prophet of God. I'll be reading today from the New English Translation, the NET, and again, 1 Kings 19, verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel, All that Elijah had done, including a detailed account of how he killed all the prophets with the sword. Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah with this warning. May the gods judge me severely. If by this time tomorrow I do not take your life as you did theirs. Let me just make some comments as we go through the text. This follows the showdown on Carmel. And Ahab is present. Jezebel, of course, is is challenged uh, implicitly because uh, she's a fan of Baal and and Asherah. But King Ahab, whom we studied in the previous podcast, relates exactly what happened to Jezebel and particularly how those 850 prophets were killed. She is furious. These were false prophets. From Jezebel's perspective... The catastrophe on Carmel must be requited. Elijah is a dead man. You may also have noticed 
how she refers to the gods. May the gods judge me severely. She is a pagan through and through. And then here we find a surprise. Verse 3. Elijah was afraid, so he got up and fled for his life to Beersheba in Judah. He left his servant there while he went a day's journey into the desert. He went and sat down under a shrub and asked the Lord to take his life. I've had enough. Now, O Lord, take my life. After all, I'm no better than my ancestors. He stretched out and fell asleep. Fell asleep under a shrub. Well, what does Elijah do? He runs far away. He's not a happy man. He's saddened. He's depressed. He's fearful. He falls asleep. He's reminiscent of Jonah. And Jonah may actually have lived in the same century, or perhaps in the next century, that is, out of the 800s or the 700s B.C., But both of them are on the run from God. They let their emotions get the better of them. They both want to die. They both both just want to sleep and and totally disconnect themselves from the challenging world of following God. I think we all relate to that to some extent. Continuing, all of a sudden, an angelic messenger touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked, and right there by his head was a cake baking on hot coals and a jug of water. He ate and drank and then slept some more. The Lord's angelic messenger came back again, touched him and said, Get up and eat, for otherwise you won't be able to make the journey. So he got up and ate and drank. That meal gave him the strength to travel forty days and forty nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. He went into a cave there and spent the night. So as we follow the story, we see that though he's run away, God's not forgotten about him. And he sends a messenger or an angel. Of course, in Hebrew, those two words are identical. As this version puts it, an angelic messenger. And he's told, get up and eat. So the first message he has from God is is pretty simple. The Lord understands There are basic human needs that may need to be met, especially when we're spiritually fatigued and when we're depleted of our reserves. Basic needs like rest, food, and rehydration. And notice that after he has the meal and he drinks, he sleeps again. And then he makes a journey. Now, it's probably a symbolic number, when it talks about traveling 40 days and 40 nights. A very common symbolic number in the Old Testament. But at any rate, it was a a long distance, and he ends up at Horeb. Well, that's not the familiar name. Most of us think of it as Sinai. But what he's done is he's gone back to where the law came from, where God touched the top of the mountain and spoke to his servant Moses. Elijah, like all the prophets after him, called people back to the law, called them back to the Torah, to the word of God. And so in going back to Sinai, he's returning in a sense to Moses. He's returning to the very source of the message and what animated him him, and what gave him uh, 
power and, and confidence to challenge leadership, to challenge authority. He's on a kind of a spiritual retreat. But notice it begins with rest and food, and then he goes to an incredible place. He goes to Sinai or Horeb, and he spends the night in a cave. Let's continue reading the text. All of a sudden, the Lord spoke to him. Why are you here, Elijah? He answered, I have been absolutely loyal to the Lord, the sovereign God, even though the Israelites have abandoned the agreement they made with you, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and now they want to take my life. Well, <laughs> we see that despite the, uh, the opportunity to eat and, and drink and catch up on his rest, and even come to a spiritual location, that is Sinai, Elijah has not quite made it. He's not there yet. He's in a better place than the beginning of the chapter. At least he's being refreshed to the point that he he's able to consider God's point of view. But he still feels alone. And it is lonely work, challenging a system to change, speaking to those in authority and leadership when you feel outnumbered, not just by them, but even by the people. Now, we've seen in the book of Kings, well, we've seen in, in all of the Old Testament that often there will be a short-lived revival among God's people, but so often everybody reverts to where he or she was before the revival. And uh, Elijah knew that the Israelites would be tempted to go back to the worship of Baal and Asherah. In fact, even worse, as, as we continue to read through the, the Old Testament books. So it's, it's lonely work. And perhaps he's, he's doubting himself. Certainly, for anyone to say, I, I think I'd rather just die, he's doubting more than himself. He's in a spiritual crisis. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. The Lord is ready to pass by. A very powerful wind went before the Lord, digging into the mountain and causing landslides. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the windstorm, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire, there was a soft whisper. When Elijah heard it, he covered his face with his robe and went out and stood at the entrance to the cave. All of a sudden, a voice asked him, Why are you here, Elijah? And he answered, I have been absolutely loyal to the Lord, the sovereign God, even though the Israelites have abandoned the agreement they made with you, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. I alone am left, and now they want to take my life. Well, we see several things about our friend. He still feels lonely. He rehearses his line or his excuse that he had shared a few verses before, says pretty much the same thing. You can see or sense, I think, a resentment towards the Israelites and, and no doubt he had cause to be frustrated. But he's feeling uh, in danger, not just alone, but in danger. They, they've, they've killed the prophets with the sword and he's not here referring to the false prophets of Baal and Asherah. He's talking about what happened to most of the prophets in the Old Testament time. 
They were killed. They were not tolerated. And he's in fear here. And that's why he says, I alone am left and now they want to take my life. I mean, uh, he, he wants to take his life. Uh, they want to take his life. Uh, this is a very, uh, very challenging situation. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like just throwing in the towel? Or worse, have you ever just hoped that you would die? I know many people listening to this podcast have had that feeling at some point um, in your life. And I will say, though that's, it's not been one of my particular thoughts, there's been plenty of discouragement on and off through the years. Now, the, and I think the, the older I get, the more I can understand the, the sense of despair that many feel. The narrow road is narrow. It's not comfortable. As Christians, we're always going to be in the minority. And it's especially hard when we feel we're among the people of God and we still feel in the minority. I mean, Elijah was among the chosen, the elect people of God. And yet, he felt so lonely. Now, obviously, part of this was just him. He, he drifted emotionally and spiritually. He, he allowed himself to get into a position where his faith was eroded it was uh, it was tattered on the other hand he was facing some very formidable odds and and opponents opposition at any rate if you've ever felt like elijah maybe you'll you'll get something from this chapter what encourages me and i never noticed it i've i've read first kings almost 50 times it's only this most recent reading I noticed. When God passes by, we're familiar with the wind and the earthquake and the fire. But when the small voice comes, what does that mean? I think it means that God's word, of course God has access if he wants to use stunning and phenomenal means. and you know, Fire and earthquake, he can do whatever he wants to do. But he speaks softly. He speaks calmly. It tells me that God is in control. Even if I'm having a really hard time. And maybe you're listening to this and this is a hard time for you. God's word, God's in control. So often we want to get recharged by electricity. We, we want to be uh, just dazzled by the power of God and and. It's almost as though if we could see a, a fire or be in a windstorm, then yes, then we'd see God. But we could become like um, uh, junkies uh, for that kind of sensational experience. We could become addicted to the thrill, the rush, the excitement. The truth is what abides, what remains, and what really changes us is not these phenomenal things we might witness. It's the Word of God. And the word of God doesn't change. Does this make sense? I hope this makes sense. The word of God doesn't change. God's calmness shows that he's in control. And this is what Elijah has apparently forgotten. He feels lonely and he feels out of control. The truth is Elijah is out of control emotionally and spiritually. Well, look what happens next. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came and then head for the desert of Damascus. Go and anoint Hazael, king over Syria. You must anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. 
and Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abba-Meholah, to take your place as prophet. Jehu will kill anyone who escapes Hazael's sword, and Elisha will kill anyone who escapes Jehu's sword. I still have left in Israel 7,000 followers who have not bowed their knees to Baal or kissed the images of him. And that's as far as I'm going to read in 1 Kings 19. What does God do? Even though Elijah is still in a funk, he's still feeling very lonely, very challenged, God speaks to him and gives him a solution. And he says, in effect, you need to go back and re-engage. God never criticizes him for the weeks he's taken in this sort of spiritual retreat. In fact, it, it was a spiritual retreat in the negative sense of that phrase at first. And it becomes a bit more positive. But even at the end of that, Elijah's perspective is not where it should be. The truth is he needs to go back and re-engage. His perspective won't change until he's really involved again with other people. Does that speak to your situation? Do you feel like you're on the sidelines? Or do you feel small or insignificant? Maybe that's what the Lord would say with a calm and still voice. Go back and re-engage. Now it's very interesting what Elijah is told to do. For one, he's told to go to Damascus, that is, the capital of Syria, the Syrian kingdom, the Arameans, who throughout the Old Testament are, are the enemies of Israel. But he's going to go there and anoint the king. The king will be Hazael, and the Lord will work through Syria, that is the Arameans, for his own purposes. And if you know the Old Testament story, uh, boy, he does a lot through them. But he's also to anoint Jehu. Jehu, and we will have a separate podcast on him. Jehu, the son of Nimshi. Well, by appointing Jehu, his whole problem with Jezebel is taken care of. How is that? Because as we saw in the previous podcast, or as we heard, Jehu actually kills Jezebel. Now, Ahab meets his end uh, when he refuses to listen to a different prophet's advice. You may recall in the Ahab podcast, he got humble when Elijah challenged him in 1 Kings 21. But then in 1 Kings 22, he, he won't subject his ideas to another prophet of the Lord, whose name is Micaiah. And for rejecting the advice of Micaiah, he loses his life. He's killed in battle. But he has many sons. Well, this king Jehu, whom Elijah is appointing, will actually deal with Jezebel and the whole house of Ahab. So he's not going to be persecuted by Ahab, Jezebel, or their descendants. And that comes from simply anointing Jehu as king. God also tells him, you're not as alone as you feel. And God never says, you don't feel these things. Of course, he, he felt things. But he simply states a fact. And the fact is, I still have left in Israel 7,000 followers who have not bowed their knees to Baal. Now, God knows those who are his. I know some of you are wondering, is 7,000 a symbolic number? I, I don't know. Uh, maybe. I, it seems like a round number. I take it as a literal number, but maybe it's not. But in Israel, 
which would have been hundreds of thousands or millions. To say there's 7,000 followers on the one hand seems kind of discouraging. Wow, such a small fraction. Uh, Sounds like a fraction of a percent. On the other hand, if you can imagine yourself in a crowd of 7,000 people, all of whom love the Lord, well, I guess you won't feel quite so lonely. So it's a relatively small number, though if you look at it absolutely compared to (laughs) just one person, it's pretty encouraging. So he gives them the fact that he's not really as alone as he might feel. And then he calls Elisha. I don't want to get into the material for the next podcast, but Elijah goes in the very next verse, which is 1 Kings 19, 19, and he basically calls Elisha to follow him, someone to train. He will be his mentor. And through Elisha, Elijah will amplify his impact on Israel. He would got to a point where he really needed to train up someone to replace him anyway. It's similar to Moses in Exodus 18. Moses was on the ragged edge uh, emotionally, standing around all day trying to meet everyone's needs. He just needs to delegate. He needs to deputize. And he takes the advice of his father-in-law Jethro, Exodus 18. Well, here in 1 Kings 19, in a very similar way, Elijah is doing too much. He's burnt out. And so he calls Elisha. Well, he connects through Elisha and Jehu and Haziel, and he gets back into the flow of things. He gets back into uh, the people of God. And that's what was necessary to overcome this this feeling of uh, of depression, of sadness, anger, resentment, fear, all, all these things that seem to be just dripping out of that chapter. Elijah has to go back. And that's what he does. And it's so good that he did. What do we learn about the Lord? I mean, I love learning about Elijah and I like you know, comparing him. You know, in the, in the further comments section, uh, you'll read my ideas uh, uh, for how to compare this man to John the Baptist. And there are some very interesting parallels. I hope you'll, you'll follow up on these and take advantage of those extra notes. But the most important part of each podcast, I really think, is what we learn about God. And there are four things I see as we study the story of Elijah. Now, the first one, I just have to say it, though it's not really in the chapter we looked at. It's certainly in the previous two chapters and also in the New Testament passage, James 5.17. And that's that God listens to man's voice. If we pray, incredible things will happen. Secondly, we learn that God speaks to us in a voice, in his word, not just through impressive natural phenomena, things that dazzle and wow us, but it's God's word. And as we internalize that message, the peace of God will guard our hearts as well. We get our perspective back. Thirdly, though our moods and feelings may change, God's word does not change. The message kept coming back the same. Our moods and feelings may oscillate like mad, but God's word is a constant. And fourth, the future will take care of itself when we're trusting the Lord. God had a practical plan for Elijah. Elijah re-engaged. He connected with those he needed to connect with. And as a result, he was able to get past this very dark period in his life. 
And if you are in a dark period, part of the solution is not just waiting till you feel different, but it's reconnecting. It's talking to others, having an active or proactive plan. That's what we learn about God. God listens to man's voice. God speaks to us in a voice, in fact, in his word. Though our moods may change, God's word does not change and last. The future will take care of itself when we're trusting in the Lord. Next time, we'll be looking at the successor of Elijah, whose name is Elisha, and also his servant, Gehazi.